Amen. Renaissance, what's up? Yeah, yeah. Good morning to you. It's uh, always a delight and honor to be here. I'm just excited. Um, I, I, if, if I can just lay my cards on the table early, when Jordan hit me and texted me and asked me to come uh, preach, the, the first thought I had was, man, because this is my second time being here, I was like, man, I must have did okay the first time that he invited me back the second time. Uh, but then I realized that the Lord had to, had to check my ego, and I, I realized that Jordan was just being gracious. He's just giving me an opportunity to fix what I messed up the first time. So um, grateful for my boy Jordan and uh, just excited about him and newly father. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just really excited about that. He, he actually said that, uh, that Jameson slept from 11 to 4 last night, and I envy that. We just we didn't have that. That's great, because my kids slept, I mean, all day, and we're up all night. And you know, when, when we first, um, you know, they tell you you can put cereal in the bottle after a while, and that would help them sleep longer. So the first, the first day that I, I knew it was time, I was taking that cereal and jamming it in that bottle. It was like this much cereal and about that much milk, but uh, they survived. They're, they're both here with us today, and they're both, uh, they're both okay. Uh, let's, let, let's jump in to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. A lot in this verse. I really want to get through all 13 verses, um, and, and in order to do that, I, I love to jump right in. Uh, before I do that, let me just say, man, I, I'm always excited uh, when I come here. I don't know what it is, man. It does my heart good to see. I think because I knew Jordan two years prior to you guys actually uh, gathering and even launching, and so to see this place in full operation and I mean, y'all got the lights going on now. The, the flat screens is like up, and, and it just, it's just incredible. Ethnically diverse uh, praise team, all different type of generations in here. And I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm really, really uh, overwhelmed is the word that comes to mind when I think about uh, our earlier conversations when Jordan was just talking about what Renaissance would look like and uh, what the Lord was laying on his heart. So let, let me just put that to you. This is not normal. Okay, this is not normal. I know sometimes you come and you, you grab your coffee and, and, you know, they got coffee out here. It's good coffee, too. They didn't even give you that gas station stuff. It's good coffee and you got bagels and everything out there and you guys come in here and sometimes it can just feel like this is normal. Uh, but this is not normal. This is a, a working of the Lord. And I'm just grateful to see how the Holy Spirit has operated and brought this thing together and just looking forward to seeing what else he's going to do here uh, for the glory and honor of his name and for the good of Harlem. Second Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. It was just read, so I'm not going to read it again. Uh, Jordan messed up Mephibosheth about 10 times, so uh, if I mess it up once or twice, you guys be a little gracious to me. I'm going I'm to preach on the topic entitled Unexpected Grace. Unexpected Grace. Uh, a few months ago, I was uh, online in, on usairways.com, and I was booking a flight uh, from New York, and I forget where I was booking it to. I think Miami or St. Louis, either one, but I was booking a flight from New York. Now, there's two ways you can do that in, in New York as far as international airports. You can do that through John F. John F. Uh, Kennedy Airport, JFK, or you can do that through where else? LaGuardia, right, LaGuardia. So, um, cheaper flights were on LaGuardia, probably because LaGuardia is, I don't know if you guys know about the ranking of airports, but LaGuardia is literally dead last. Like, it is the worst airport. In fact, Joe Biden called it a third world country, and so that, that kind of gives you some perspective of what 
uh, LaGuardia looks like. I, I, I mean, one time I was going through there and it was raining outside and no lie, they had buckets in the airport and water was dripping through the ceiling. So uh, that's LaGuardia. But I, I was interested to find out who LaGuardia was named after, simply because I knew who John F. Kennedy was, 35th president. Um, he was actually the first president, I don't know if you knew this, the first president to dance with an African-American woman at his inaugural ball, the first. So I knew some stuff about JFK, knew he was a very charismatic leader. Um, I didn't know anything about LaGuardia, and I, was, I wanted to find out who was LaGuardia, so I started to research on who LaGuardia was. I found out that uh, LaGuardia was named, well, for, originally it was named uh, Glenn Curtis Airport, originally. And then it was changed to uh, North Beach Airport. And then 1953, it was named LaGuardia Airport after the third-term mayor, Mayor LaGuardia, Ferriola LaGuardia. So it was named after him. So I'm, I'm sitting here saying to myself, well, you have an airport named after a president that was assassinated, that was loved by the country. And then the third-term mayor. Who was this third-term mayor, and what did he do so well that they named an airport after him? I realized when I started to look at some of the stuff he did, he would do things like take an entire orphanage to baseball games, the entire orphanage. When, when the newspapers would shut down, he would go on the radio and he would read the comics to lift the spirits of, of New York. He was loved in New York. In fact, they named him, his nickname was Little Flower. Now, now don't ever, as a grown man, call me Little Flower. I'm just... <laughs> I'm saying, we're trying to reach some, some ethnic minorities. If, I, if I'm in the hood and somebody going, yo, little flower, come here. That just won't work well. That won't work well. So don't call me little flower. But they called him little flower because he was, he was five foot tall and he was loved by New York. He used to do things like go down to City Hall and relieve the, the judge for the day, give him the day off, and he would try all his cases. Every one of them. You can't do that now, but he would do that back then. One of the cases that came before him interests my, my, uh, my, my thoughts. One of the cases was this. There was an old lady uh, that was brought before him, and the case was between a store owner and this old lady. Now, the old lady stole a loaf of bread, and so the case was brought before him, and so he looks at the lady and says, well, why did you steal this loaf of bread? And she says, well, I have five young, starving grandkids at home. And so then he looks back at the store owner, thinking that the store owner is going to say, you know what, I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to let this slide. But he says, you know what, it's a bad neighborhood, so we got to punish her to teach everybody else. So then the mayor says, okay, fair enough. He pulls, he's pulling out $10 out of his pocket. He says, I'm going to fine you $10. He gives her the $10. It's a true story. I'm not making this up. Gives her the $10. She then gives it back to him, pays the fine. He then does something outrageous. He looks in the courtroom and he says, I fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a neighborhood that an old lady has to steal bread to feed her grandchildren. Finds everybody. Everybody. Listen what the newspaper article said the next day. It says, New York newspaper reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that being contributed by the grocery store owner. While so <laughs> That got me. I know he was ticked off. <laughs> 50 cents of that being contributed by the grocery store owner while some 70 criminals, people with traffic violations, New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. This woman, listen what it says. 
This woman certainly received unexpected grace. Folks, that is what grace is. Grace does not only pay the debt. Grace pays the debt and then gives you more. I'm not talking prosperity, but grace gives you more than what you could have ever expected. And so it is so with our passage that we've just read for today. If I can just give you some context of where we are, King David is now the king of Israel. His predecessor before him was Saul. He was the first king of Israel. He had a son named Jonathan. Both of them died while they were in battle with the Philistines. Well, uh, Saul, he killed himself. He fell on his own sword, but his son Jonathan was, was, uh, was killed in battle by the Philistines. Now, Jonathan and, and David had a deep, deep relationship. First Samuel, seven, uh, First Samuel 18 says that their souls was literally knitted together, and they made a covenant with one another to take care of each other's family. And so we'll, we'll, as we're walking through this passage, keep in mind that this, is, this passage is purely based on a covenant. But keep this in mind. Let's look at verse number one. There's some observations of grace that I want to pull out. Verse number one. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The first observation is grace has been extended purely based on somebody else. Grace has been extended based on somebody else. It's not that Mephibosheth has done anything great. Mephibosheth is lame at both feet. He, he hasn't done anything good, but grace has been extended to him because of a covenant between David and Jonathan. Do you see the gospel implication? If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have received unexpected grace purely based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have not, you've done any, you have not done anything good It's nothing that you could do good to appease God. But you've received grace because of somebody else. David could have executed judgment. Think about this because in in ancient days when a new king rose to the rank of king, he would kill the entire family of of his predecessor, the entire family. This wasn't like an an inaugural, you know, every four years to get a new king. It wasn't that. You got stabbed in the shower, and then you would kill the rest of the family, and then someone would take your throne. And so so David, even thinking about Mephibosheth, should have been executing judgment. Why? Because if Mephibosheth, because he is in the bloodline of Saul, in the bloodline of Jonathan, he, if everything would have worked out for him, he would have been king. And so David looking for him should have been, I'm going to execute judgment on him. But he doesn't do that. He gives him undeserved, unexpected grace. This is what you and I have received. God looking for us should be him executing judgment. God looking for us should not be grace. There's nothing in us that he should pour out his grace on us. Ezekiel 18 verse number four says that the soul that sins shall surely die. And all of us were born in sin, according to Psalm 51. We were born in sin, shaped into iniquity. God looking for us should have been judgment. But because of his covenant with his son, Jesus Christ, because of David's covenant with Jonathan, Mephibosheth is not going to receive judgment, but grace. Purely based on somebody else, the covenant of somebody else. Look at the second thing about this verse. 
Look at grace. It says, and David said, is there anyone? So, so David wasn't looking for anybody that met a certain criteria, that had perfect teeth and perfect hair, lived in a, in a, in a nice zip code, drive a nice car. He wasn't looking for any of that. He says, is there anyone? Anybody that was in the family of Saul and Jonathan was a perfect candidate to receive grace. It had nothing to do with anything that Mephibosheth could bring to the table. He was lame at both feet. He couldn't bring anything to the table. And so grace being extended to him was based on somebody else, and anybody could have received this grace. You just had to be in the family of Saul. Is this not good news for us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ? Why? Because there's nothing that we bring to the table of salvation except our sin that makes salvation even necessary. And so we are receiving grace because of Jesus Christ, not anything we've done, not because of who you are, not because what you drive, not because of your race, and not because of your ethnicity. None of that matters. We are receiving grace because of Jesus. Do we see the gospel here? We are forgiven. We are given grace because Jesus Christ was executed and took on our sin. There's a movie called The Last Emperor. I don't know if you ever saw this movie. Anybody ever seen that movie? There's a few people. It's a movie about a three-year-old boy from China that rose to the rank of emperor of China at three years old. He had uh, eunuchs and servants all over the place. In the movie, his brother asked him, he says, what happens when you sin? Well, what happens when you do something wrong? He says, well, that's easy. When, when I do something wrong, my servant is beat. And so he wanted to show him that. He takes a jar and he smashes it on the ground and his servant gets beat. The gospel completely reverses that. And so now when we sin as servants, the king is beat. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And so now we can be accepted by God because Jesus Christ has taken on our sin and put it on himself and gave us his perfect 33 years of perfection. No deceit was found in his mouth. He was perfect, spotless, and we get to receive that. Is that not grace? Is that not grace? Look at what David says, though. Look at what the scripture says. Verse number two, now there was a servant of of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba or Ziba, whatever you want to say. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Please notice, if you read this chapter, this verse, and think that this is a story simply about David and Mephibosheth, you've missed the story. David is showing the kindness of God. This is showing us the kindness and grace that is found in Jesus on God's behalf. That is what this is showing us. This is not just about a a person that's lame at his feet and David. This is a pointer to the cross. He is showing the kindness of God. But look at what Ziba says in here. Look at how Ziba announces him. Ziba says to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled at both feet. Notice that Ziba saw a servant. I'm, I'm, don't, don't lose it here. Don't, I don't want you to lose where we are. Ziba does not announce Mephibosheth by his name. He purely announces him by his condition. He announces him 
by his dysfunction. Now, many commentators will say what, David, what, what uh, Ziba is trying to do is detour the king from showing him grace. If he says he's lame at both feet, surely the king is going to say, well, I, I don't want him in my presence. I don't want him in my presence. That's what, that's what Ziba's thinking. This is, this is what the enemy does to us day in and day out. He presents you to God by your condition, your fallen condition. They, do you realize that Romans chapter 12 calls, calls Satan the accuser of brethren? It goes so far to say he accuses us, accuses us before God day and night. Think about this. Satan is at God's feet accusing you day and night for what you've done. Day and night. This is good news for us. Why? Because we have an advocate that sits on the right hand of the Father. And every time Satan brings up our our condition before God, Jesus stands on the side of God and says, well, I paid for that. What what else? I I paid for that one too. I took care of that one. He slaps the Holy Spirit a high five and paid for that one too. He paid for all of it. And so there's nothing that Satan can bring before God about you, about your condition that Jesus isn't on the right hand. If you've placed, placed your faith in Jesus, nothing that he can bring before you that was not paid for. Nothing. That's good news for us. This is what grace is. He's crippled at both feet. How is Mephibosheth crippled? In, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, it tells us that uh, the nurse, his nurse at five years old, so he's been crippled since five, took him in her, in her trying to make haste to run from the Philistines, she dropped the boy. That's what the scripture says. She dropped him. He must have had some type of spinal injury, and he was crippled since five. So he's lived with this condition all of his life. And so David's, look at David's response, though. And so Ziba says to the king, he says to him, well, he's crippled at both feet. But look at David's response. David says in verse number four, and the king said to him, where is he? Look at, look at grace. David doesn't ask how bad is he crippled. He doesn't ask when he was crippled. He doesn't ask any of that. Grace does not concern itself with your condition. If you're in the family of Jesus, God simply wants to know, where is he? That's good news for us. David isn't asking questions. David just wants to know, where is he? That's the first question in the Bible. We're prone to being lost. The first question in the Bible is, where are you? Where is he is what God wants to know. He's looking for David. His concern for David goes past what David, or his concern for Mephibosheth goes past what Mephibosheth can bring to the table. He just simply wants to know where is he. Grace doesn't concern itself with your shortcomings and what you can bring to the table. It just wants to know where you are. That's the good news of grace. Interesting thing is that the king is searching for the crippled. Notice the sovereignty of our God. The king is searching for the crippled. The crippled is not searching for the king. Why is that good news? Because there's some of us in here that think, man, I'm too far for God to find me. Like, I, I, can't, like, I can't find God. And you're right, you can. But you don't have to because the king is searching for you. That's what the scripture is telling us, that the king has searched for the cripple. You never see it backwards. You never see in the scriptures where we are searching for God. God always searches for us. That's why Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. This is, this is you never see the mouse chasing the cat. You never see it. You see the cat chasing the mouse. 
And that is what the sovereignty of our God looks like in salvation. God chooses and saves us. He seeks us. David is looking for the cripple. Cripple's not looking for the king. Let's keep moving. Verse number four, the B part says, And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel at Lodibar, or Lodabar, whatever Jordan said. At Lodabar. This is where he is. Now, this is interesting because Lodabar is considered a place of no pasture. It's a place that's unfruitful. So, so we have Mephibosheth from a fallen dynasty. He's from a fallen dynasty. He's crippled, and he's living in somebody else's house in a place where there's no fruit. It's unfruitful. Certainly, that person should not be receiving grace. And so I don't, I don't know how far you are. I don't, know, I don't know what you did last night. Some of us have sins that we've not even confessed, that we haven't told anybody about. I don't care what you have done. You cannot outsend grace. You cannot outsend grace. I don't care how far you are. You can tell me anything, and I can tell you grace is more powerful than what you just told me. Anything. That's why the Bible says where sin increase, grace abound all the more. Grace abound all the more. It doesn't matter what you've done. I don't know who you are, but God knows exactly what you've done, and you should not feel ashamed to bring that before God. Why? Because there's grace for you. There's grace for you. And so he's in Lodabar, in an unfruitful place, yet God is searching for him. David is searching for him. Not just searching for him, but searching to show him grace. Look at what the scripture says, verse number five. Then King David sent him and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David says, Mephibosheth, with an exclamation point. I don't know what your Bible says. I'm reading from the ESV. Mine says Mephibosheth with the exclamation point. Why is this amazing? Because can you imagine when when uh, when, when Mephibosheth got the knock on the door from the soldiers. Now, keep in mind, the king should have killed Mephibosheth. And so he would have hid, since five, all he's known in his life was to run and hide. And so the, the soldiers even knocking on the door probably struck fear in his heart. He's in Lodabar. That was over 3,000 miles away from Jerusalem. Imagine the ride from Lodabar. He didn't get on a plane. Imagine the ride from Lodabar all the way to Jerusalem, thinking, feeling like a cornered animal. This king is going to torture me and kill me. That's all he would have thought. But look at what the response of grace is. No, no matter where you are, look at the response of grace. He says, Mephibosheth, with an exclamation point. His response shows us a couple of things about grace. Number one, you do not, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not have to fear the wrath of God. There is no wrath for you. you, you don't, there's no such thing as a believer receiving the wrath of God. No such thing. Because Jesus has already received the wrath. We got a charismatic one. I love it. I love it. I love it. Jesus has already received the full weight of the wrath of God. There's nowhere in the scripture you can tell me we're going to receive wrath. Now, we may receive, we may receive a spanking. We may get in trouble. 
but you will not receive the wrath of God. It's double jeopardy if he does. He paid for it. Jesus already paid for it, so we don't have to receive wrath. Jesus already received the wrath of God, the full weight of it. He licked the cup bone dry. Bone dry. There's nothing for us to receive. And so we don't have to be afraid. He says, Mephibosheth, and he's excited. He's excited. The second thing that this verse tells us is that we don't have to be afraid of our own dysfunction and sin. You know how many of us try to hide our sin? We don't want people to know. We don't, we don't want to get in community because if I get in community, then you'll know about me and you'll, you know, I'll expose myself. That's why most of us don't like to connect to church because we're like, if I connect to church, they're going to be in my business and they're going to find out about my sin. But grace, grace doesn't concern itself with that. It's, it's been dealt with. And so Mephibosheth going into the king's presence does not have to worry about his condition. Why? Because the king is excited to see him. He's excited. That's what an exclamation point is. He is excited to be in the presence of the king. And so it tells us those two things. You don't have to fear the wrath of God, and you don't have to hide your dysfunction. You know how many people do that? You do not have to hide what you've been through because grace, it, it covers that. You can say, man, this is what I've done. This is where I've been. This is what I'm currently involved in. And grace says, where are you? I'm happy to see you, exclamation point. That's grace. That is grace. Let's keep moving. Now, mind you, he, now keep in mind, this ride from Lodabar, he's fearful. He's, he's, he's scared for his life. But look at what verse number seven says. And David said to him, do not fear. Grace calms fear. Completely calms. The king calms him. Do not fear. For I will show you the kindness. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father and I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Do you hear this good news? Do you hear the grace that we see here? David's kindness completely removes Mephibosheth's fear. Completely removes it. Can you imagine that moment he's standing before the king? Imagine the moment that you're standing. If you're a believer, you've placed your faith in Jesus. Imagine when we're standing before God on judgment day. And he says to me, do not fear. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ. Not based on anything you've done. He's not showing you kindness because, you've, because you're so great, because you've dotted every I and crossed every T. He's not showing you kindness because of you. He's showing you kindness because of Jesus Christ. Because he was well pleased in Jesus Christ. Only God can appease God. You cannot appease him. And so we have received grace because of Jesus that is what we receive. And so look, look at how costly this grace was, though, because sometimes we think grace was just quick and easy. Look how costly it was. Three things that in, in this verse, David tells him, he says, don't fear. I'm going to restore land to you and you're going to eat at my table always. Restore, I'm going to restore land to you. Now, David doesn't have to do this in order to keep his covenant with, date, with Jonathan. He simply could have kept Mephibosheth alive put him on some type of royal welfare system, and he would have been good. He would have been good, and David wouldn't have been in sin because he broke the covenant. He, left, he kept him alive. But he, he goes so far. This is how costly grace is. It goes so far that it restores to you land. Think about the land of Saul. This would have been, this wasn't, this wasn't like no little piece of land. This wasn't an acre. He's receiving 
a lot of grace. It's costly. Same with our grace, with, with the grace of Jesus Christ. It cost God something. He sent, his, he sent heaven's best. He didn't send Gabriel, right, to die for us. He didn't send the archangel Michael to die for us. He didn't even have 10 sons and pick Jesus and say he's going to die. He had one son, and it cost him. It was costly. This isn't what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. This is not cheap grace. This is costly grace. It costs God something This is how you know it's grace, though, when it sounds too easy. Look at what he says, verse number 8. Verse number 8, and he paid homage and said, this is what what Mephibosheth said. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Certainly, Mephibosheth would have felt overwhelmed by, by all of this grace. He would have felt overwhelmed. And that is when you know it's grace. Please hear me. If you do not know Jesus... And you're scratching your head saying, man, that just sounds too easy. That's when you know it's grace because it is exactly that easy. When, I, when, I, when the Lord changed my heart and ransomed my heart, I, now I was born and raised in church. I went to an old African-American church. My mother literally spit me out on the altar. Like I, I was in church like three to four times a week, extremely religious. I'm telling you, I think I was born somewhere around here right on the altar. I'm telling you, I was always in church, but I did not know Jesus Christ. I did not know him. I did not know him. I don't care. All of the exposure to church does not save us. Jesus saves us. And so I didn't know anything about the gospel. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know paying for my sins. I knew to sing in the choir. That's what I knew. That's all I knew. I knew to serve. I didn't know anything else. But a friend comes to me in the parking lot of the church at the age of 28. A friend comes to me and shares the gospel with me. I literally argued with him for two hours. I argued with him saying, that's too easy. That's too easy. He shared with me uh, Galatians 3 and Acts 15 is what he used to to show me that I was justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And I argued with him. I said, no way. It's faith plus my works. That's what I argued with them. And and that is when you know it's grace. When you're scratching your head, looking back and saying, it can't be that easy. But it is that easy. It's exactly that easy. And so Mephibosheth would have felt overwhelmed. And so he calls himself, he says, who am I that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now a dog in ancient days, you call somebody a dog. I mean, that was that was degrading. And so Mephibosheth sees himself as, as not just a dog. He says, a dead dog. That means I feel, I feel lower than low. I, I didn't hit rock bottom. I'm underneath rock bottom. That's where he feels. But this is so interesting. Later on in the verses as we keep reading, we're going to see that even though Mephibosheth saw himself before the king as a dead dog, the king sees him as a son. The king sees him as a son. He doesn't see him as for what he sees himself as. He sees himself as a dead dog, but the king is like, no, you're my son. You're my son, not because you're you're wonderful. You're my son because I've had a covenant with somebody else. And so I see you now. You're now grafted into the family. Yeah, let's keep going. Verse number nine. Then Then the king called Ziba 
Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. And so, so David is now, he was talking to Mephibosheth. He's now completely going to ignore Mephibosheth and completely talk to Ziba. Look at what he's saying to Ziba. Verse 10, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had, now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 15 sons and 20 servants. Verse number 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord, that my Lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Remember when I said this lamb was costly? How do I know it's costly? Because look how many people it takes to till that land. He says, Ziba, you're going to work the land. He didn't even say just your people. You're going to work the land, Ziba. Your 15 sons and your 20 servants. 36 people it takes to till this land. You don't need 36 people for a small piece of land. That's how massive and costly this grace was. That's how massive and costly this land was. It was so big that it took 36 people to till that land. That's how costly it was. And he says, but your master's grandson, he's mine. He's going to eat at my table. Always. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to lift a finger. He simply sits at the king's table and eats, eats with me, not just once or twice, but always, forever, eternity, forever. As long as he lives, he's at my table. He has a permanent spot at the king's table based on the relationship that he has with Jonathan. Don't forget this. It's not Mephibosheth. It's because of a covenant that we are grafted in and sit at the king's table always because of Jesus. Second Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, not, chapter 8, verse number 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We get to sit at the king's table because, because of the poverty of Jesus Christ, because he chose to poverty himself. Look at, look at the B part of verse number 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Grace provided for someone who was hiding in Lodabar. Grace provided a family for him. That's why, that's why the scripture says, we cry, Abba, Father. We are, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have been adopted in. You have, when I walked in here today and, and got to talk with Justin and some of the other people that um, are from Renaissance, Meredith, and just some of the other people, in my mind, I'm like, man, wow, your family is amazing, God. Like, I get to engage with other people that don't look like me, don't dress like me. I, I can't see Justin wearing red sneakers. I, I don't know if he has a pair, but I just can't see him doing it. But I get to engage in being family and be adopted with people that don't look like me. That don't look like me. And I get to be adopted. So Mephibosheth has received now a family. Let's finish this up. Verse number 12. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame at both feet. I love the fact that this chapter ends by telling us again. It's almost like 
He's received all this grace, but don't forget, he's lame at both of his feet. Now, as we close, when I think about him eating at the king's table, in my mind, I'm scratching my head saying, I want to know who's at that table. I do. I don't know how your, your, I don't know how your brain works, but when I read this in my mind, I'm saying, who else, what's the benefit besides this, just this king being there, which is good enough? Who else is at this table? Let me tell you who would have been at the table. Absalom would have been at the table. Now, the king, of course, would have been there, but Absalom would have been there. Now, I don't know how much you know about Absalom, but 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25, this is David's son, Absalom. It says this about him. Now, in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish. So at this table is somebody. Now, when, when the Bible says you look good, <laughs> you look good. Like you, this is a good looking dude right here. The, the, there's, the scripture says there was no blemish found on him. But think about this, that Mephibosheth, who is lame at his feet, is sitting across with somebody that is perfect and outwardly doesn't have a pimple, just is just cute. That's what he is. But, but Absalom is at the table with Mephibosheth. Do you see that when, when you are adopted into the family of God and you receive grace, you sit at the table and look spotless. He looks, like, he looks like Absalom sitting at this table. Like he has a spot with somebody that's perfect. And, th- and that's why, that's what the beauty in the gospel is. That although, think about this, when you stand before God and he says, come on in, well done, because of your faith in Jesus, he's going to use words like spotless with you. You, think of you, spotless, righteous, holy, blameless, pure, and we know we're not. But yet we get to hear those words because we've received the righteousness of Jesus. And so we are spotless. And so we are clean. And so we are righteous. So Absalom's at the table. David's other sons would have been there. David's uh, uh, beautiful wives would have been there. David's Joab would have been there. Joab was the general in David's army. He would have had a seat at that table. And so think about all these prestigious statesmen and, and all of these people with wealth and money, they all would have been at the table. Imagine dinner time. Imagine all of these beautiful people and rich people, influential people coming to the table and imagine Mephibosheth's crutches clicking against the walls as he's walking down. His, he's dragging his feet coming to dinner. But yet, when he sits down and the tablecloth crosses his lap, he looks like everybody else at the table. Folks, that is what grace is. That is what grace does. And so I don't know if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ or not. I, I, have, I have no clue. You know. You know. I have no clue. But I, I, I come simply to bring this one message, and that is there is grace for you. It's unexpected. None of us, none of us were born trying to be in a relationship with Jesus. Not when the Bible says we were born in sin. And you, you, you know how you know you're born in sin? Because you don't have to teach a baby how to bite. You don't have to teach them how to say no. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish and grab the toy and say mine. We are born. It's a part of our nature. It's a part of our nature. And yet, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus is coming to you and coming with unexpected grace for you. 
so that you can have a permanent seat at his table. Always. You get to sit and be in relationship. Do you know that the average life on earth is 70 years? That's it. 70 years. Eternity compared to 70 years, it's like taking a rope and wrapping it around this building. That's eternity. And one little speck is your life on that rope. Like 70 years, is, and that's not even promised. But that's the average age. You need Jesus if you have not placed your faith in him. If you have, I pray that you be strengthened by this word of grace. Is don't, grace doesn't just save us. It sanctifies us. It keeps us all the way until Jesus comes back for us. And so if you haven't placed your faith in him, I, I pray that you would today. I pray that you would not leave here. One of the greatest fears that any pastor has is that you would hear a word of grace and walk out of here and do nothing with it. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, if I'm honest, we, we are rocked by the gospel. It, it doesn't, it's not good just for salvation. It's not good to get us in the door, but it keeps us. We don't, we don't move past the gospel. We don't outgrow the gospel. It, it's too wide. It's too deep. It's like, it's like trying to swim to the bottom of the ocean with no scuba gear on. We can't do it. The gospel is endless. And Father, I pray that you would help us to apply grace to our lives. Those who don't know Jesus in here, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move on their hearts. Don't let them, don't let them leave here and not choose you. Jesus, you're not the better of, of a bunch of different alternatives. You are the only way. You are the only way. And I pray today that we would find ourselves deeply, uh, desperately desiring a deeper relationship with you. Do something in our hearts, Lord. If we are believers, strengthen us according to your grace. We thank you that you've sent your son to die on our behalf so that we can stand before you and receive what Mephibosheth has received, and that is unexpected grace. So we love you, and we pray that you would um, let this word manifest in our hearts. Let it not be plucked out because of the cares of life, but let it dig deep in our hearts and that we would walk out of here and run this race well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.